are being joined by Marshall Steinbaum, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Utah and Senior Fellow of Higher Education Finance at Jane Family Institute, also known as Econ Marshall on Twitter, which I've been told is not his rap handle, so please don't ask him to freestyle, I guess. Thank you for joining Discourse. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No, thank you for having... Oh, wait, no. Backwards. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. We're glad to, we're glad to have you. Uh, I know that John has been a long-term fan of your work, and we invited you on to talk a little bit about some of the ongoing news revolving around the gig economy generally, but a good vehicle to begin talking about that is with the recent news regarding Uber and Lyft, right? And I know you've been talking about this a lot over on Twitter and, you know, over on your website, marshallsteinbaum.com. I hope that's right. Org. Dot org. Fuck. God yes, I'm, I'm part of the nonprofit industrial complex. That's why I took the dot org uh, uh, URL. It's fine. I mean, you know, we have a saying on a discourse, you either die a hero or live long enough to become a nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> It just fits the trajectory. So, yeah, you know, let's start with the Uber and Lyft news, if you don't mind. I I don't know how much you've been following it. I assume a lot. John has been following it and nagging me a lot about it since it's been forever. So why don't I let John sort of introduce the topic and sort of ask you the question? So since probably about 2018, Uber's been fighting, well, since they're founding, but really since 2018, they've been losing a battle to keep workers misclassified so that they can actually make money. Um, You know, if you follow anything over at NakedCapitalism.com or Yves Smith or any of the other economists who try and do like dives into the prospectus coming out of Uber and the money coming out of Uber, it doesn't look like Uber has ever made a profit. And so that's like one of the longest tech startups that's ever gone without making a profit. And they're still hemorrhaging money today. And now um, they lost a court case, Dynamex, where they had to, in 2018, where they had to start classifying workers as workers rather than as independent contractors. They tried to repeal that and uh, they lost again. And then it got put onto a ballot measure, Prop 5 in California, where they now have to classify workers as workers again. So now they tried to repeal that, did not work out for them. And now they've tried to put on the ballot another referendum to basically repeal Prop 5 called Prop 22, which is really just bullshit. And um, they're now being told that they, by a judge that they have until this Friday to classify all of their workers as workers and instead of independent contractors. And they've now said, hey, well, if we have to do this, we're pulling out of California. They had sent out massive text messages to all of their uh, employees, all of the drivers lifted the same thing saying, you know, go for Prop 22 and we're going to repeal this and, you know, we're going to have to pull out. We're sorry, you're going to be left without a job. And meanwhile, I think that they just offered a stay on the implementation of that for like another week, but saying that they have to show that they're going to actually implement um, any type of work within a week to actually make them employees before they force them to shut down. And uh, did I get all that correct, Marshall? Is that about right where we stand right now? Uh, Yeah, that's uh, basically uh, where we stand, certainly where we stand right now. Um, As you say, they have been, they have premised the entire uh, business on uh, misclassifying workers throughout their history. So this sort of political legislative uh, uh, climax that we're at in the moment is like a decade in coming, um, and it's taken this long to kind of Put, hold their feet to the fire. Um, you know, when these businesses first got going, they were very uh, effective at kind of rushing into new markets, providing a service that signed up a lot of people at at the time they were uh, heavily subsidizing uh, fares. So, you know, it seemed like, you know, suddenly everybody had a half price uh, taxi at their beck and call with a better um, kind of dispatching uh, than traditional taxis had. Um, and, you know, at that, and, and that was a very conscious strategy to create a large customer base where they could then kind of try to bully regulators and bully drivers definitely um, uh, to accept uh, that the business should operate on their terms, which is to say misclassification. So to be clear about what misclassification is, um, employment law or labor law uh, reifies the category of an employee. uh, And the idea is like, who's eligible for unemployment insurance if you're not employed. Well, if you've never been employed, if you're just like some person who's never worked, you can't go into an unemployment insurance office and claim to get unemployment insurance benefits. You have to be an employee. And in particular, 
you as an employee, when you are employed, your boss has to pay premiums into an unemployment insurance fund. That's the fund that finances unemployment insurance if you get laid off. Um, there's also the question of sort of who has to carry the expenses of the car and gasoline and uh, all of the things that are inherent in operating what is essentially a, a taxi service. Um, you know, is that on the drivers to carry or is that on the, the company? Well, if the company is uh, your employer, then it's on the company. If the uh, if, if it's on the uh, if, if if the drivers are not employees but rather independent contractors, then they're like small businesses, and so it's on them to carry those costs. So you can see that um, the question of are the drivers employees or are they not employees is a highly consequential one. Um, right, and the one thing I want to add about that is that you know in a lot of states and a lot of, in a lot of the federal ways right now, the way that it works as an Uber driver, you can get write-offs for a lot of these business expenses. However, it's not nearly like the you know, the government's losing out on taxation by allowing this to happen. And and two, it's not really nearly as much as your expenses are incurred because you're adding depreciation on your car, your phone is getting you wear and tear, like all the stuff that you're using is actually devalued as you're using it. So you can get a tax credit for all of these things, but it's not nearly as much as what your wages or the cost of the company covering it would be. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point at, to the extent that like individuals can claim deductions for uh, expenses that are necessary to to do their jobs, um, but they claim those as individuals. So right. like your car, the car depreciation rate that the IRS allows is as though you know you're kind of a person and not making your living using your car. And if you're an Uber driver, your car is going to depreciate at a faster rate um, than if you're uh, you know just anybody exactly. in a car. You know, so so th- that those kind of subtleties definitely come into it. Um, the big thing that I feel like has been largely missing from the debate over misclassification, that is whether the drivers are or not legally employees, um, is the question of sort of like power in a broad sense and under whose control are they. Um, So the idea of being not an employee, an independent contractor, is that you are effectively an entrepreneur, you're your own businessman, and uh, you can't be told what to do. So I've written about this kind of going back into the antitrust laws that that existed or at least were interpreted as, as in the following way in the 1940s and 50s, which is if you are not an employee, then you cannot be told what to do. That is, if you're in the status of the independent business of an independent contractor, as Uber is claiming the drivers are, it used to be against the law to tell those people what to do. Now, under current antitrust interpretations, that's not the case. If somebody is outside the formal boundaries of the firm, they're not your employee, you still can get away with a lot more of telling people what to do. So for example, when drivers match to individual customers, first of all, it's Uber who tells them which customer to match to rather than like drivers competing with one another for individual customers. The, the, uh, The matching is at Uber's discretion who goes to whom. And secondly, the price, you know, Uber has always set the prices for those putatively independent transactions. So they're saying, well, you know, this is just, you know, some entrepreneur in his own personal car, you know, the service that we provide to that entrepreneur, his relationship to us is as essentially a software dispatching algorithm. Um, And, uh, you know, that's, it's not the, the actual provision of the driving services from the driver to the customer is a third party uh, transaction vis-a-vis Uber. Okay, but Uber is setting the price for that third-party transaction. Right. And, and one thing that I want to add is uh, not only are they setting the price, but also if you refuse, Uber punishes you. Yes, yeah, yeah. So so the whole kind of panoply of punishment and like rating systems, um, also surveillance. So Uber, in some contexts, Uber has uh, been very uh, forthcoming and boastful about the fact that it surveils drivers because it's saying, well, it does that on behalf of consumers. So, for example, drivers don't cheat on uh, taking routes that charge you a higher fare in Uber vis-a-vis in taxis. They have more discretion to do that. That's Uber's claim. The premise of Uber being better about that is that Uber is very closely surveilling the drivers in the performance of this, again, putatively independent uh, third-party service that the drivers are providing to the customers. So my overall point in drawing this connection to antitrust is that entire uh, function or, or setup in which um, a more powerful party effectively forces a less powerful party to do business in the way the more powerful party wants, that used to be illegal under antitrust laws except under the employment relationship. That is, in exchange for um, the control that comes from employment, under employment your boss can tell you what to do, 
comes the responsibilities associated with the legal employment status of, you know, unemployment insurance eligibility, of having your car be the responsibility of the boss as opposed to the responsibility of the worker, um, including unionization rights. So Uber has actually used antitrust law to uh, inhibit uh, unionization attempts by drivers. Um, they they say, oh, well, the driver's getting together to negotiate fairly. Right, it's us. price fixing. That's a violation. Yes, that's price fixing by the drivers, whereas we fix prices every day. That's not a violation right. of antitrust. So so this whole, so the reason why I bring it up again is that like the, this fight is happening in this terrain of, of labor law. That's what AB5 is in California. It's an interpretation of the California, I mean, it's an interpretation clarification of the California labor statute who counts as an employee, which is fine, and I'm uh, supportive of that. There's a whole other front in the battle, which is about right. antitrust, which is, okay, if they're not employees, then can they be told what to do? Um, and my view is it has always been imperative to open up that second front, that is to create a, uh, or, or to try to seek out a means of creating antitrust liability for uh, Uber in the conduct of its business of telling other people what to do that are not their right. employees. Um, and, and my view is, you know, in, in the current setup where all the, the, the political and legal battle is all over labor law, you have a kind of trench warfare thing where it's like any gains in terms of more drivers being classified as employees, this is going on with AB5 in California, that's like a loss for Uber. They want to prevent that at all costs. If you open up the second antitrust front, then suddenly you'll get these companies or their, I mean, I think you know, as this evidence is showing, the, the companies are in a weak position and, and so they may not be around for that long, but you know, their successors, like there will, this, this overall policy question is not going to go away even if Uber and Lyft bite the dust. Um, you know, that uh, if you make the antitrust liability for controlling the activities of non-employed workers of your independent contractors, then suddenly that kind of business is going to want to employ people because the treble damages under the Sherman Act, you know, that means huge liability if they get caught controlling people who aren't right. And, and like one of the things I always tell, like I drive Uber a lot, and one of the and have for the past couple of years, and one of the things I always tell my my passengers when we talk about this stuff is it's like okay i'm driving to your house what if you called 15 house painters and interviewed them and told each of your house painters that you were gonna that they should paint your house but it was 50 dollars and that's all you were going to pay them and then all of a sudden benjamin moore came in and forced one of them to do it right like how is that how is that yeah, the, the yeah. possibility of legal legality and no one really thinks about right, it when they're right. just using the taxi service because like you said you know uber's been operating at a loss by subsidizing all of these rides in order, like you said, to get market penetrations so that they have the muscle to start possibly charging more through yeah. the monopoly practices, like as evidenced by the Amazon model. But at this. Right, right. And it, I want to I want to highlight the fact that they don't need to. I, I think they have increased uh, fares for consumers under yes. the current circumstances, um, but they don't need to charge more. So like there's this idea that it's only bad to charge low prices and monopolize market if subsequently you then charge high prices because you now control it, that that idea has a sort of counterpart in the jurisprudence of antitrust law that's bad. So like Amazon, for example, I think the business model is fairly clearly set up to always essentially be a low cost provider, not the lowest cost. And they often preference their own stuff that costs more than other items on their platform. So I'm not saying that it's always the cheapest, but like the fundamental setup of Amazon is charge low prices everybody who shops online for anything retail will mm -hmm. first go to Amazon and then you control the marketplace and then you turn around and squeeze people upstream um, or use uh, price discrimination. So some people pay a high price and some people pay a low price for right. the same good. Or, or so do knockoffs crush competition by taking over their items yeah. through your own manufacturing and own production lines. Yeah. And that, and that, that, and that itself, you know, that that's in some ways the end of monopoly. That is, you know, you take over their profitable uh, lines of business. It's also an instrument of monopoly in that you threat, threatening that is a very potent threat. So you get people to do what you want. So for example, in the pandemic um, early on, I had, we had these anecdotes about essentially, um, you know, Amazon requiring vendors to pre-stock rare warehouses with their, with their high demand goods. You know, so there was this context in which like not everybody could get the goods that they wanted in the time that they wanted, you know, Amazon basically used its market power to stock up its warehouses to get dibs on suddenly scarce commodities. And what they were, the, the threat that they were making essentially was, if you don't put your stuff in our warehouses in preference to any other distributor, then we will turn around and copy your stuff. You'll never get into our warehouses again, and you'll go out of business. So that kind of muscle, you know, using 
uh, the muscle that market power gives you, you know, that used to be the essence of an antitrust uh, violation um, and, you know, an overall claim that like Amazon is an illegal monopoly, for example, as evidenced by the fact that they have the power to do this and they use that power. Um, uh, you know, that used to be uh, illegal under the antitrust laws. And now, uh, you know, at least, I mean, they're, they're under investigation, but if they get, uh, if, if they get uh, prosecuted and, and uh, pursued for those grounds, it's going to be a long time um, until they uh, get broken up or have to pay or whatever the remedies might be. Um, the way, oh, I wanted to say one more thing, but that pertains to uh, ride sharing as well as Amazon and all the other tech platforms. This idea that you charge you 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 know take huge VC money uh, you know SoftBank is just like shoveling Saudi oil money into Silicon Valley. You take that gigantic pile of cash and use it to charge low prices and obtain you know monopolistic market penetration, and then turn around and. Uh, screw, uh, screw over upstream people, um, or price discriminate, or you know block uh, other potential rivals out of the market. That is a playbook that Silicon Valley has learned how to run, and they will continue to run it until um, until there's some sort of policy response that goes beyond any one particular company. Because fundamentally, this isn't about particular companies being evil and unusual. I mean, they are evil, but they're not unusual. My point is like that's a it, you know it's a matter of policy to make that. Uh, that business model um, illegal. And in fact, our current antitrust policy basically encourages that business model because it says if you charge low prices, basically, then you, then there's no way uh, you will ever be um, a, a guilty of... Right. But as we saw with airlines, things. low prices doesn't necessarily mean better quality or, or you know, auto, American automotive manufacturers. No, no. Right, right. So, so right, right. So you've got, you, you've got like, I mean, I guess the, the sort of received wisdom about the airline sector, which I think is a little bit oversimplified, is, you know, thanks to deregulation, prices went down and so everyone started being able to so we're talking going back to the 70s everyone started to be able to afford air travel rather than having it be a preserve of the rich um you know what we see is uh you know the airlines basically make the quality worse and worse and keep the price the same so it's effectively a price increase but because it's not literally a price increase you know as they do all these mergers and you know individual air parts are more or less totally controlled by one airline or you know at most two like all of that kind of escapes scrutiny because like oh look the prices are low um you know right. so therefore therefore we're fine and i think we see that in a lot of markets i mean the play the big place where that overall like low prices excusing all sins where that doesn't hold that's like mm-hmm. healthcare housing education you know the big things where we think like oh god we're you know pe- spending way more on these uh uh types of goods and services now than we were in the past you know there it's because essentially prices are really high but they're also really opaque and consumers are price insensitive for various uh, reasons which are are quite uh, complicated so i would say on the one hand if you wanted to kind of like divide the american economy into two big buckets both private i mean my my kind of uh, over, uh, overarching and somewhat reductive explanation is both of them are the creations of a lax antitrust law. You've got on the one hand the sort of low price consumer goods, like show, you know, very uh, low quality, just like um, environmentally uh, unsustainable type of economy in the kind of uh, physical goods space with retail, um, at, you know, and, and that kind of things that are uh, exemplified by Amazon and Walmart. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got the sort of high and opaque prices uh, where, you know, the, the companies will make claims like, oh, we're very innovative, so we have to charge high prices like you get in pharma, um, uh, like, you know, higher education has that kind of quality to it. So you've got, there's sort of like the transparent, low price, low quality, high output, unsust- environmentally unsustainable half of the economy. And then there's the high prices, very exploitative, um, uh, you know, very opaque segment of the economy that's like more typical of the service sector um, as well as housing. Well, I just wanted to jump in here one second and say uh, thank you for coming on, Marshall, because uh, first and foremost, you are the only guest we've ever had that speaks at a speed that I find to be reasonable. Okay, good. I'm glad finally somebody agrees with me in the right way of thinking about this. Oh, no, no. Everyone else just, you know, I get a lot of complaints because I speak very fast. I'm from Brooklyn. I don't know where you're from, Marshall. New Jersey, so, you know. Exactly, right. So we speak at normal speed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I agree. The point I was trying to make is just that, you know, first of all, uh, audience, (laughs) learn to listen faster. Um, Second... 
you know, going back to the airline thing just for a second, because, you know, I, I am less immersed in the literature of gig economy, so I feel like I'm learning a lot. But, you know, one thing about airlines is that if you look at their actual quality or the um, rather what customers think of airlines, broadly speaking, they're universally despised. It's like the customer rating for airlines is so terrible, but it's kind of a race to the bottom where it's like you where you might have, let's say, a negative 70 or negative 80 customer service ranking. But that's considered good compared to like the negative 170 Frontier uh, JetBlue or I don't know, uh, Southwestern Airlines or Frontier. Right? It's sort of just accepted that because there are only so many airlines and they're all the quality is just low across the board or the customer satisfaction is low across the board. You know, just don't be the worst. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think it's funny in this kind of respect because you'll get in, say, for example, you have a big airline merger like uh, uh, American and US Air, I guess, or Continental United from a few years ago. Um, the economists will be hired by the defendants to come in in the antitrust case and either try to convince the Justice Department not to challenge the merger um, at all, or in the case that the, there is a merger challenge and it goes to court, the economists will testify on behalf of the, uh, the companies um, in the, their defense. And they will say, look at all the consumer surplus these airlines have created. So that's like economic jargon for they've made consumers better off by lowering prices and, uh, you know, supposedly increasing the availability of, um, you know, affordable vacations and routes or whatever. Um, and what you're saying is like, yeah, but the consumers don't actually agree with that. If you ask the consumers how they feel about airlines, they don't think that like they've been so beneficial for consumer surplus. So you have to have like 20 advanced degrees and be a professor of economics at a fancy university in order to get paid thousands of dollars an hour, literally, to go and say consumers have been made better off and thereby contradict everything we know about what consumers actually think about their own well-being. Yeah. And also airlines know this too. Airlines know that they're universally despised, which yeah. is why when they came in with their hands out during coronavirus, it was a little bit, you know, ironic. But my second point though, when it comes to the high volume or rather high cost in the that you were talking about too, like in many ways, at least as far as I know, a lot of pharma companies operate uh, research and development wise like big tech companies do. Whether you have smaller labs or like smaller, more I would say innovative work being done by smaller little businesses out there that are just that are just, you know, working to be I don't know, glommed up by these large, <laughs> yeah. these larger, like, or, or publicly funded, or they're just like buying up, you know, someone, some, uh, you know, biotech startup that's already done the majority of the work, but they're not necessarily operating the same way people think they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea that the big uh, pharma players, just like the idea that the big tech companies are the agents of innovation in the economy, I think is totally false. I mean, I, I you know, I don't want to either overly valorize the sort of like smaller companies that do the buying up because I think it's a whole ecosystem that feeds on yeah. itself. You know, it's like basically what the pharma companies have specialized in is not developing new drugs. It's in navigating in controlling the political system um, and, uh, you know, the process by which drugs get approved. So it's like, okay, you know, first of all, you know, a professor at a university like does basic research that points in the direction of a marketable drug, then they leave or license their research to some outside party where, you know, it's like, okay, well, the, the place where uh, the research was really done, uh, you know, their cut is minimal, um, you know, it kind of, there's like all these startups spun out of chemistry departments or whatever in universities, and then those are the things that then later get bought up um, by the pharma companies once their product is uh, proven out, and, at, you know, at that point, that's, you know, it, it, like, I mean, I, I don't, have, like I, I just feel like the way it works is basically like you want basically a political license to just charge a ridiculous price for your product and you can't have that license from our political system unless you are the product of one of the major pharma companies um so you know that's like okay if you want the big payday you need to get bought up uh because they're the ones that have political cover to essentially screw over the american people um you know with at the connivance of our political system i mean it's really kind of shocking that you know pharma is the sector where um you know, pretty much all of Congress is bought by pharma. Most federal agencies that have anything to do with this uh, are, are, you know, very friendly to, to the pharma interest. You know, the only entity or the only stakeholder uh, that is uh, not friendly to the pharma interest is like the American people, broadly speaking, and all of those other stakeholders are kind of together um, conspiring to screw over uh, the public by, uh, you know, forcing extremely expensive, life-saving, uh, necessary drugs down their throat, and then the tr prices are, you know, rather 
opaque because it's your health insurance that's paying for it and like you don't realize how much of your annual income you're losing because it's going to pay premiums to your health insurance um you know so it's like there's all these steps that basically mean that we're all paying through the nose for um you know way more than uh than is necessary to have uh uh uh, drugs that people depend upon to survive and like the whole system is set up to obscure that fact and like part, uh, prolong the scam that's being run um, on the public. I mean, if right. you, you know, other countries overtly regulate the price of pharmaceuticals because they rightly regu- they rightly recognize that these are necessary goods. So that means that whoever produces them has enormous market power and would charge an outrageous price if they got to choose. So the government does so, at least in theory, on behalf of the public interest to keep prices reasonable for things that the public depends on like the united states is the one company or the one country basically that lacks that right the first time yeah yeah i mean i guess the point i just want to make is that i don't think it's like technologically impossible for a small company to bring a new drug to market i think if they want to bring that new drug to market at a price that makes the payday enormous they need you know their big brother partner a big pharma company and so that means selling it out to them and letting them take their cut of a much bigger pie if that makes sense that makes a lot of sense. Just to jump back to something you were saying a little bit earlier, I mean, about the gig economy, you know, we have a whole ecosystem of gig economy now. We have food delivery. We have grocery delivery. Dog walkers. We have dog walkers. We have, uh, you know, any number of menial tasks have been outsourced to the gig economy. Like, but when you talk about Uber drivers or Instacart delivery drivers or, you know, Grubhub delivery drivers, I mean, like, they're, they need to classify them as employees with all the benefits that that affords. You know, you get people who always want to draw this argument of, like, choice, right? You know, like, the idea, like, they, you know, what they give up in benefits or whatever they make up for it having the freedom to set their own hour they, they get to choose when they work and you know this sort of glor- like glamorized version of what the economy looks for that kind of appeals to the more I don't know uh, rather that that the uh, more PMC vice president nine to five nine to six like um employee class of worker whose lives in big cities are entirely facilitated by the presence of the gig economy like it's just a nice little myth they tell themselves right because like for and, I, and I'm sure like as someone who talks about the gig economy online you have people arguing in your mentions all the time about how you know like actually these workers are making a choice because Uber doesn't put a gun to their head or you know uh, Lyft doesn't put a gun to their head and make them sign up to you know make them sign up to like drive routes or whatever just entirely ignoring like the entire climate or context of like the economy we live in which is that there are no jobs right we know that post 80 percent of all jobs yeah we know that post 2000 you know eight housing crisis you know job the job market tanking like a lot of the jobs that they got back under obama were just like these gig economy jobs uh yeah so i mean basically you've said it already yourself i think that all of that is right the idea that there's a trade-off between like employee benefits versus autonomy right the way i would put it is is there a trade-off between workers standing uh vis-a-vis their existing employment relationship or i guess not legally employment if you want to take uber side um versus their autonomy to choose where and how they work and whether they work for somebody else the claim by these companies is that there's a trade-off between those two things so more autonomy in the form of the gig economy would mean you know less standing vis-a-vis their current employment if they wanted more rights in their existing employment relationships well that entails giving up autonomy um and that is just categorically false as an interpretation of how the labor market works in practice like there's economic models that kind of vindicate or at least consistent with that insight but those models are just false like we know that they are not models they're not an accurate representation of how the labor market actually works in the labor market as it actually exists the two uh, concepts worker standing and uh, power vis-a-vis their existing employee employer and autonomy to work when and how they please including for another employer those two things are complements. So like the more autonomy you have, the more standing you have vis-a-vis your current employer because you can leave. You, you are in a better bargaining position. So it's just, you know, not not true that, that, you know, oh, well, we could classify them as employees, but then they'd lose something that they value. No, it's like you, you could classify them them as employees. It would be you taking away the thing that they value if that's, you know, if that's the, the um, exercise of power that you want to make. So, you know, Right. Uber doesn't necessarily have to make me work nine yeah, to five. Yeah, I, right, right, right. Like, the, yes, exactly. Right. You, there there could, still could be just as much autonomy. And I, I think, in fact, there would be. I mean, this idea, like, and even as employees, the like, my view, I mean, as we discussed earlier, you know, the we're, the, the drivers in the ride-sharing context, but overall the gig workers are so much under the control of the individual companies and they're already that, like, there's not a world 
it, there's not a meaningful sense in which there's a greater margin of control for them to exercise. Like they've already kind of maxed out on controlling as much as they would want to. So the idea of like, oh, well, okay, you know, we'll go to a new model where they're your employees, but also we'll control you so much more. I don't think that is accurate. Like they're already totally under the control um, in an economic sense of the, the platforms that are now essentially in this employee, in this labor law dispute. The question is, should that control be recognized in the law and the um, benefits that accrue to being an employee and under the control of somebody else should that accrue to these workers? So, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, the, the, as I think you were accurate in the way that you characterize that, you know, sort of like, oh, but, you know, the gig economy, at least the workers have the right to work when and how they want. Like, we're actual workers in the gig economy do not believe that. That's a line that, you know, these companies have fed through their economist mouthpieces and other propagandists, you know, for the benefit of third parties that are like, oh, yes, I would support workers' rights, but also, you know, I like having my food delivered or whatever. Or like, Have being you considered... To- yeah. Have you considered they like being slaves? Yes, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. No, and then that this is why I mean I I you know have a long record of uh, antagonizing uh, the globe emoji libertarian types among us. Like you know that I, just because I feel like that uh, insinuation of like oh well actually like have you considered that they actually like being slaves? Like that just has such a long and sorted history in that uh, milieu, and it's like being you know kind of used as a, a a shorthand for a much larger propaganda effort like beyond the kind of so-called true believers to get to the you know ostensible like white liberal to use uh, mlk's kind of characterization well yeah i mean just talk about that a little bit we've been having a conversation about the gig economy in the context of coronavirus and how this transition to from a lot of gig economy workers from conceptualized as those at least but in the libertarian for sort of for the right wing punitive understanding of like how our economy and how jobs work like you know the people who occupy minimum wage jobs or gig economy jobs are either like people who failed to make the right choices that would lead them to have a better job or people who are you know choosing to do so because it's all they want to do like them you know like these are like this sort of fanciful notion of like the grandma who drives uber to make meet new people because she's bored in retirement yeah. stuff like that and i think that you know you're right in that there's a far-right libertarian sort of take of just like fuck them who cares right, right. like that's the, that's the economy working but we you know something we've noticed about the you know about the more centrist liberal you know upper middle class type especially in new york city where i live is that like a lot of the appeal of just being that type of worker is rooted in that you have this kind of pseudo permanent underclass of servants yeah. who just come and go and do all of the menial tasks for you for you and yeah there and like and that's just the not necessarily the benefit of occupy, occupying this sort of managerial class, right, of worker, where you get to have this sort of, you get to play real boss over Uber drivers. And most of these, man, you know, PMC, project manager type jobs, or even vice president type jobs at banks, you don't really manage anybody. You don't really get to, it's just like, a, it's just a little title you get to make you feel like you're not such a pleb, but you don't really <laughs> have any managerial power. You know, I, I say I say a lot to say this. There is a part of it, too, that I think has become clear in coronavirus that is, once you remove the layer of like oh they're choosing or like this is for failures you know there is a layer of like what keeps up this veil of not being a worker for a lot of like the upper middle class manager managers is the presence of this servile class and of course what we're seeing now especially on the coronavirus is like you know resistance as well to the idea like well if you classify these people as, as workers what if you know an uber driver is making more money than right. i the person they're serving you know, what if it's possible for like an Uber driver or, uh, you know, or uh, I don't know, um, uh, Grubhub delivery person to make as much money as the person that they're delivering to. And of course, that's like, you know, that can be disguised as, well, then what's the incentive to get out of this job? But really, it's about, you know, placing the hierarchy. If yeah. your barista is making as much money as you are and you're like the I don't know the uh like the project manager at a tech startup, then, like you know, that kind of puts you on equal social footing and yeah. it's not as attractive. Yeah, yeah, right. and to speak to that a little bit, in my own personal experience, when I first started driving with Uber, I was making relatively close to what I was making as a project manager building beaches and islands around the world. So, like, I had in charge of billion dollar jobs, and I was making relatively close to what I was making as an Uber driver when I first started driving for Uber. Now, because of what they've done with pricing, that's not the case at all. <laughs> now I'm making half that. Well, but still, anyway. Well, Marshall, well okay. I mean, there's tons of what you said. Uh, there's tons to respond to in what you said. Uh, all of which was was brilliant and right. So let me just stipulate that right off the bat in case in in case I don't get to to speak directly to everything you said. Um, The whole business of like, oh, you know, Uber is great because grandma gets to meet somebody, gets to meet people and get out of the house. Um, You know, that 
appeals to a like just profoundly anti-worker ideology um which is the question of sort of who counts as a worker and what counts as labor um and it, it has been the uh rhetoric and strategy of bosses throughout the history of the world to point to their own workers and then point to their own workers as not being quote real workers first of all and thus not entitled to the emoluments of work like job security for example and also to use the existence of such people to uh, discipline the demands that quote unquote real workers make so like in the whole minimum wage context for example for decades you would have people say like oh the minimum wage doesn't need to be increased because that's just teenagers getting summer jobs you know they're not actually living on it on the on what they make at their work they're they're living at home you know they're just hanging out with their friends you know they're not make it like when when uh, demands for a higher wage in the form of a legislative minimum wage are made on behalf of minimum wage workers we should not understand that demand is coming from people who have the right to make demands as workers and it's not just that you have this sort of like fringe of casual labor used to discipline the demands of real workers but also like very real workers in the actual scheme of how the labor market works kind of being pushed into the category of not real workers in order to uh uh, exclude them from benefits. So this is what you get, for example, in the kind of at this point, um, you know, notorious uh, exclusion of uh, agricultural labor, and, labor mm -hmm. and domestic uh, service from the Fair Labor Standards Act of, of 1938, which is the federal government finally, after you know, 70 years of of uh, uh, not just not legislating uh, federal labor standards, but actively the Supreme Court basically striking them down, even at the state level, you know, basically the most um, fraught kind of policy question on the national um, uh, uh, debate between 1870 and 1938 was the question of whether there would be federal labor standards. Um, that's finally enacted. And then you get this sort of carve out by industry that clearly has a racially discriminatory and exclusionary uh, cast to it. Um, you know, the Fair Labor Standards Act was extended to those types of workers in different ways in the 1960s as part of the civil rights movement. That's, um, you know, kind of part of the claim of the civil rights movement fundamentally is to full membership in the New Deal state, including um, of black workers in the uh, labor standards included in the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, but anyway, to get back to get to the, the main point, it's like you say that these workers are not real workers, therefore not entitled to the benefits that we've now said real workers are entitled to. And then you sort of segregate entire classes of workers uh, on the basis of uh, race and gender, basically in sort of subordinate categories. Okay. To get to, I think a lot of what you said about the kind of hierarchy of labor uh, in which you have sort of everybody's working in the service sector, but you've got some people making six figures or whatever as a vice president of a bank or a, a, a tech startup type, you know, going to, you know, get their, their coffee or, or um, uh, Uber uh, driver, uh, some kind of, you know, casual and, you know, gig economy worker who like has to be kept in the same subordinate position, you know, that, I, I mean, I, I guess, one thing I would say to that is like, I view the existing economy as fundamentally exploitative of everybody who depends on their labor to make their living, which is why I've always felt that there is a politics of solidarity among everyone who makes, a, who, who depends on their labor to make their living. And that would include, um, you know, the PMC types that you're talking about as well as gig economy workers. On the other hand, I think you're, you're correct that that politics is exactly undermined by uh, feelings of hierarchy that are fostered by labor market stratification and occupational stratification. And so the idea that, you know, gig workers would kind of like rise up and make claims on the rest of us as is embodied by AB5 or collective bargaining by, by gig economy workers or whatever else you want to um, point to, you know, that's like, uh, that that's perceived not just as threatening by the CEO of Uber or its stock, the, the people who have its stock, that is the people who benefit when, if, if and when Uber ever makes a profit, you know, also that's a threat to the person who depends on Uber to take a, you know, to, to uh, get a, a ride home when they're drunk. That is to say, you know, not some, you would think like that person could, there's a politics where that person is solidarity in solidarity with the driver, but the politics that we have is a politics in which that person needs to be kept superior to the driver in the way that that's, uh, enacted, in, uh, instantiated in the real world, just through occupational segregation that depends on this legal existence of the uh, of the gig economy and the non entitlement to employment status by by workers there. Okay, <laughs> I forget. I, I'm sure there were like three other things I wanted to say that I've now forgotten, but I'll stop there. 
Yeah, yeah, welcome, welcome to the discourse. Uh, you know, anyway, no, that's a good point. And I would just say also, and I think that's easy, you know, it's easy to disguise that sort of impulse to keep this hierarchy in place as just like a material concern, which is that like, you know, if we were to give them more rights, it would raise the cost of blank and that would actually hurt your wallet. Like if we were to, you know, if we were to, you know, give Uber drivers rights, it would cost Uber, you know, cars, it would cost, you know, Uber rides to cost more money. You know, it does that already under surge pricing. But let's say, you know, when you're, t- it's 2 a.m. and you're drunk, do you really want to have to like choose between between paying $45 when you used to pay $20 to get home in an Uber or just having to hoof it or take public transportation like, you know, the real poor people do, right? Or, or do you want to take, you know, your own private car? And, and I think right? we so did like, see, I, mean, I will course, say something. One thing I have seen is that like the instances of drunk driving, I've seen studies that show that under Uber, because the prices are so cheap, that actually has gone down. But so some people would make that calculation the other direction and take their private car again. I mean, I remember like being a bartender when I was in college and seeing so many people drive drunk and that just doesn't happen anymore or as much. Well, yeah. At the same time, though, you could just correct. City yeah, absolutely. Or, or public transportation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and I was, I mean, on the specific question, like there, I, I just don't fundamentally reject the idea that Uber has been technologically no. innovative in a large sense. But I, of do, course, it I do been. think they kind of were ahead of existing regulated taxi companies in the sense of like proliferating essentially like app enabled you know gps enabled dispatching um but there's no reason that 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 taxi that like traditional taxi companies with regulated prices can't have that so i feel like you know what when when you're pointing out that like drunk driving is less of a problem because everyone has uber on their phone and it's just so much easier and and you know in the past people would be like they'd get in their car because that's the easiest option you know getting a taxi could be just as easy with a regulated price so that it's not, you know, $45 on a surge or something like that. Um, you know, that's, that is a technological fix that is, right. universities, uh, do that now with their vans. universities do that now with their vans. Yeah. 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 So like, I, yeah, I just, I don't want to give Uber too much credit of being like, Oh yes. If we, if we don't let them do. Uh, oh, I wasn't exactly making that argument. Wanted, <laughs> you know, employment, I'm not, I, I just want to make sure that argument is, even if no one's actually making it, I want to make sure it's good and dead. Um, you know, that, it, you know, we would have tons of drunk driving again. Uh, you know, that, that is absolutely not necessary. It's not. And, and, and I guess my point in bringing this up now is just like, yeah, we definitely should redesign cities to be more walkable so that you can live near the bar and get drunk. I completely and wholeheartedly support that. Um, on the other hand, we don't have to totally retrofit cities in order to make uh, drunk driving less necessary. The position that Uber is the only solution or the best solution yeah. to curbing drunk driving when it's just like, when it's might be one of the worst in terms of yes. long-term, long-term, long-term cost. cost yeah. right. You know, it's, right. it's only held up by the other ideological boundaries that are placed up by yes. like, okay, well, I want to have a permanent servant class in New York City or Seattle or whatever, even if you make $100,000, it's still pretty expensive to live in. And if you were to double the price of Uber or double the price of any of like the gig economy workers, like the cost, like it would actually put kind of a dampening on like how much like how much you could order maybe in some senses it would it would put a crimp on your wallet and i think that's how you appeal to people's material condition by saying hey you know what you say uh if you expand the rights of these people in some senses it's going to actually hurt how much leisure time you can afford to have at the expense of others right and so the only point to that was going to be like, but what's of being obscured there too is that we know that Uber's long-term plan is to raise the cost after the, after they've driven other companies out of the market. Right, right. We know that the long-term plan is not to like maintain a low cost and get rid of uh, drivers. Cost, yeah, and also, and, and I would say, well, so they, they say that they would have um, you know automated cars or whatever. I mean, I think that's a pipe dream. Yep. I, mean, I don't know if people there actually believe that, but um, it's not going to happen regardless of whether they believe it or not. Um, I think also that you know they definitely want to maintain a monopoly that also pertains to public transportation. Like in many instances, they have portrayed themselves as uh, augmenting or serving public transportation systems and thus strengthening them. Um, the evidence shows quite the opposite that they are uh, uh, siphoning away fares from public transportation um, in places where it's profitable to run it, which undermines the whole system because the whole idea of public transportation is that right. you have cross subsidization and they're basically cream skimming the fares. Um, Right, Innisfil. Most profitable areas. Sorry, in Innisfil, in Canada. I don't know what exactly what you're. Oh, Innisfil, the town that replaced public transit with Uber. They they put their entire public transportation budget towards Uber, and they huh. saw the utilization of it skyrocket, and so their public transportation costs went up, and then Uber raised prices on them too. So. Th- oh yeah. Oh yeah. So it's just like a, a perfect monopolization story in miniature. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I'm actually kind of surprised. I'm, I'm surprised if they got a sort of like perfect test case fall into their palm like that. I'm kind of surprised they. Uh, didn't make more use of it, you know, like you would think for the company that's just having, you know, billions upon billions of Saudi money pumped into it, they would at least, you know, use that opportunity to be like, oh, look, prices didn't go up. 
There you go, right there. I just uh, linked it in the chat. So we'll put that okay. in the show links as well. Well, you know, everyone's learning on this episode of Discourse, including uh, the guest, which is always a nice surprise. <laughs> uh, like, you know, we're, we're a very thoughtful show, is what I'm trying to say. You everybody. don't even have to say it because it's so obvious. But, you know, I mean, I think it's a good point, right? You know, like, this is, and this sort of pattern, you know, of basically the privatization of uh, public infrastructure or the use of public infrastructure or rather you know in this case uh, like roads being more or less entirely dominated by uber drivers and people can afford to use uber you know like it's it ha- it's happening all over this idea of like labor choice and labor power it's like that kind of mentality regarding that there is this sort of choice whether or not you want to work or eat or and that you shouldn't sort of continue you know consider the environmental like pressures that where it might force someone yep. to work uber is just a general sort of i think um blinder that we've been taught to put on our society just when it comes to everything like I, i'm thinking back to like the medicare for all who choose it like this idea that we, you know i trust americans to be able to navigate the health insurance market you know using their five senses and whatever free time they have after working nine to five or nine to six and commuting right it's like this sort of illusion that there is like a choice that you're making that is sort of a contextual to like you know, economic pressures you know having to feed your kids having to buy medicine having to pay rent in the just sort of the market pressures of like, well, how many jobs are there out there that I can actually a like literally take that's, you know, within my distance of walking or distance of travel? Because, you know, obviously some people will say, well, just leave the city if you if there are no jobs there, which is, again, another version of just like you have that choice. But, you know, also just like what jobs are hiring right now. And yep. so, you know, like, but, you know, and so this idea that we're all just making choices that we have to live with the consequences of. And because, you know, they're, they're a literal choice that we made freely, I think, you know, has kind of rotted the brains of Americans. Like, you know, we're looking at people who think they can, you know, that we should continue to have a private healthcare market in the middle of a pandemic. So people aren't forced to make, aren't forced or rather don't lose the option to make choices. Right. Don't use yeah, well, to, like, I mean, I, like, I wouldn't say it's the, 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 I mean, I don't think it's the public that's delusional about this. I think it's the political system that has adopted that as a convenient ideology. I think most people would be very happy to have uh, high-quality health care available to them uh, uh, for free or at low cost that's not dependent on their job, and that's there in a pandemic or no matter what happens. I think that's, like, a profoundly popular uh, and, and appealing idea. Um, and this whole idea is like, oh, but you shouldn't have bureaucrats dictating what doctor you go to. Like, I don't think – I mean, most – young people at least like don't have a doctor like this whole idea is like oh it's just between you and your doctor i mean that that like premise of like oh you have your family doctor that you've trusted for generations is just not <laughs> like reflective of anything that actually happens in people's lives in dealing with like the medical industrial complex um yeah so i i mean i just i don't want to like i i i just totally reject the idea that like the reason why we don't have some good thing is because like the public at large is delusional and doesn't want that good thing. I think like it's the political system that's delusional or at least, or, 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 or purposefully misleading and, and, you know, coming up with ex post justifications to, uh, you know, justify and sustain uh, a fundamentally. And I think reality. that you can see that uh, we saw that justification, those, those post hoc like justifications and how they're propagated to the public in the recent primary. I mean, like, yeah, under 45, uh, Bernie won under 40, people under 45 by like a 31% margin because they get their news from different sources. Meanwhile, the traditional media that's almost dominated by all of these same people that are selling us, you know, pharmaceuticals, uh, peanut butter, all the shit that they normally sell us went overwhelmingly for the status quo. The point I was trying to inarticulately make and sort of drawing the parallels between like the choice of working for uh, the gig economy and like having the freedom to drive wherever you want or whatever and like but like losing the stability quote and also healthcare is that yes broadly speaking everyone knows that's bullshit right that doesn't make any sense like that like no one who's ever been forced or had to be, even been close to being forced to make that decision as the result of like economic pressures like rent being due would consider it like a real choice that someone is making however just like well you know like the people who rely on the Uber drivers in order to play this fantasy of like uh you know lord of the techno surfs or whatever um you have this sort of layer of people who are currently and i think that's important to highlight especially during the um during the coronavirus pandemic which has seen a lot of people lose their employer-based insurance just by the nature of their job going under who are currently employed and have some level of employer-based insurance and that small sliver of people who who fit into like have employer have decent employer-based insurance and are also like have been 
dumb enough and or you know lucky enough to have always have that kind of employer-based insurance uh and has never had to actually engage with it in any meaningful way are allowed to some ways in some ways dictate the boundaries or dictate the like the public narratives around like you know employer-based insurance or like the private insurance market where it's like we love we know we love to highlight the people who just love their uh you know love the insurance company the love the insurance uh plan that they have through their job ignoring like the hundreds of millions of people who just don't even have access to that possibility anymore you know and implying that like you know if you were to get rid of that kind of private insurance market these people who love their insurance the three of them (laughs) would suffer some like great blow (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. Even though we know, like, A, they're not a statistically meaningful portion of the population, and B, their health insurance at many times won't help them in situations that are, like, they will need it to help them in. And, like, yeah. B, they might just lose it when they lose their job. Right, but, right. But, they're, but then the final, like, part of that point is, too, is, like, but, you know, giving people, every giving everyone health insurance while like we know that it that the the big political figures don't like the idea of people being untethered from you know having people's health insurance or any of their basic needs untethered from needing to be employed as well as the big pharma insurance money it's like there's also just the people who are like well i don't want to have the same insurance plan as poor people you know what is it what's it or the same doctors as poor people it's like because i have good insurance because i have a job or whatever but and if you know if we get rid of that you know hierarchy of insurances that people have you know medicare and like good private insurance in their minds like then it just means that i'm going to be going to the same doctor as poor people or i won't have the choice to choose the good doctor i'll just be you know i'll go be going to the poor people doctor and it's like first of all like any doctor can give you fucking i don't know uh, a shot of penicillin it doesn't take like an a you know it doesn't take like an a it doesn't take an a from harvard to do that but like you know again appealing to the highest levels of doctors that you can't afford anyway or you might have access to that you're going to lose access to is just a way to keep people into like trapped into this this false choice system i hope that makes a little bit more sense yeah yeah i I definitely think that's true, and I think you're absolutely right to sort of put your finger on hierarchy as being the uh, fundamental value that is uh, brought into question, and that is, you know, kind of a, a like comforting blanket for some people, um, you know, and that's deeply pernicious. I mean, I think also on the specific matter of healthcare, again, the political economy of, um, you know, having to pay through the nose for a system that doesn't work and that you know, doesn't make you healthy and that you could be thrown out of um, the second you lose your job. You know, part of that is also the doctors themselves essentially being forced to take on a ton of student debt. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, what am I going to do with this if, you know, you implement Medicare for all and all of us are, are being paid the same much lower, you know, but still like livable uh, salary, you know, I have, you know, a gigantic mountain of debt that I uh, am carrying around and like I need the medical system to continue to exist in its current form in order to uh, make that uh, in any way sustainable. So I think, um, you know, there, I mean, I, I guess there's sort of like uh, positive and negative glosses on hierarchy that you could uh, attribute to this, and I think that basically they're all true. Well, yeah, I mean, just to touch on the hierarchy point, like that, you know, what you just described, I think, is just the nature of capitalism, the nature of hierarchies that exist under capitalism. If not the central promise, but the implicit promise is that, like, yeah, you might have to, you know, do a little bootlicking the CEO of your company if you're, say, I don't know, the VP of the company. But that amount of bootlicking, that amount of like pressure you get from the top, can be, you know, you can have at least the ability to exert that on yeah. an underclass yeah. of you yeah. or people yeah. below you, yes. right? So you know, yeah. if you so like, yeah, we yeah. know doctors have student debt, lots of student debt, lawyers have lots of student debt, doctors have health, their, their insurance rates are like super high as well. And so like all of that pressure can be diffused by taking it out on uh, nurses or just serving economy people under you. So I mean, and highlighting hierarchy, I think it's important to just how much America sucks and how much like that, that suck, that suckage is disguised by the promise that you want <laughs> that like, while someone above you is making it suck for you, you get to make it suck for a lot more people below you, unless you happen to be, you know, at the bottom, well, then, you know, shrug. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. Right. And at least Shit. you're here, you know, sucks to be you. a lot of people out, um, you know, who don't have the right to be here. And like that in, it's, itself is a sustaining uh, aspect of that hierarchy. Meanwhile, we're overthrowing their government and creating destabilizing factors in their own economies so that they their only choice is to come here. Well, yeah, but that, but but that's, but that's a choice right. they made. They chose yeah. to come here, right? You know, for, forget that we destabilized their government. They forget that they're, you know, we we destabilized uh, with the drug war, with the, the a massive amount of coups. They don't have they, their choices. Don't like they still made the choice to immigrate here illegally. 
you know, of course they didn't, obviously, asylum and other laws. But like, but that, but I'm just saying that's like it's such a pernicious thought. Like it's just part of this like very in- individualized like a contextual. Yeah. Right. Well, and also, and and they're lucky to be here, which vindicates uh, or validates any uh, exploitation that happens. You know, so my my view on this is like we have a high walls, not an open borders immigration policy, which is like it's very very hard to get here. So once you're here, you can be totally fucked over. Um, and the threat of being forced out is. I think we're I think we're discovering under coronavirus that the walls are keeping most of us in. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I think the rest of the world. See, is I mean, for I will, it will be interesting if there's like a kind of long-term backlash against the um, fact that we've been excluded. We American citizens have been excluded from other countries, you know, because like at present, I guess the the kind of status quo balance of that is like most people wouldn't want to travel abroad, so they don't feel. Uh, you know, that they're being prevented from doing something that they would otherwise want to do. But if something arise, if a situation arises in future where it's like, oh shit, the rest of the world doesn't want us to come there anymore, um, you know, what does that say about us? Like, that could be an interesting kind of uh, change. Well, I mean, some people are, like, and this, I guess, goes back to our conversation of the different tiers. Like, some people are actually, well, some people is strong. Like, the pundit class, the sort of the, you know, the more, like, the more affluent classes are dealing with that question of, like, you know, oh my God, I can't summer or winter in Nice, or I can't do, you know, I can't summer or winter <laughs> in Prague, or whatever they, whatever they do. I don't know. I summer and winter the same place that I spring and fall. <laughs> so, but, like, you know, they are dealing with that. And we have to hear about that. And I mean, we, like, the rest of us who are struggling to pay our rent, or struggling to like afford medication have to hear about like the real problems they're facing of like you know not being able to go abroad i think in part a lot of the issue people are having with quarantine and being ready to rush back out to like live their quote-unquote lives is just because like without that kind of servant economy sort of shit that you like that fills people's lives they if they're forced to come to grips with how much like how much of a worker they actually are and a lot of people are just simply not going to be willing to go back to work at least people like within the centrist like uh pmc class are not going to be willing to go back to work in any meaningful like in-person way if they are not also allowed to still pretend like they're you know play this like vassal lord over like baristas and so like (laughs) you know i think go ahead well i mean one thing that i i consider like interesting about the sort of uh pandemic effect on the economy is this idea of that like your home becomes part of your workplace which given how much control we've ceded to employers over the workplace and like have extended their tentacles beyond it you know we're kind of reestablishing a uh, a politics of autonomy that hasn't existed in a long time so what i mean by that for example uh one of the founding uh events of what became the american federation of labor was a strike that happened in the early 1880s in new york city by cigar uh rollers uh, you know people who, who uh, manufacture cigars for a living where um basically they were being they were in a system where they were being forced to work at home and so-called tenement factories I think is the phrase and then the question is like oh you know if you're at work then you're and and you're a proletarianized worker then your boss controls um your labor which means they control your home so it's like you have a cigar manufacturer in theory the worker is like the father of a family but also the the boss can like force uh uh what the wife and children to also go to work and kind of control the and and you know basically uh, emasculate a man in his household vis-a-vis his own family by seizing control from him. So I think that this whole idea that like oh we're all going to be working from home you'll be so much more autonomous. No, that what that means is the boss is going to be in your house, and you know we're, there are going to be uh, court cases that come out come up where it's like oh can you know the boss like install a remote camera in your house? Yes, I mean we're basically already well they already there. have that. They've got subtle programs that they're selling right now to work to major corporations for people working at home during the pandemic, which track and spy on people through their like webcams on their computers. Yeah, yeah, and then like, oh, what about you know, childcare is obviously a huge issue. So it's like basically your boss is going to be allowed like have a say in how your family allocates the childcare responsibilities. Um, you know, all of, like, and and that's I mean, I that that was considered emasculating for a male workforce in the early 1880s. You know, it'll would be interesting to see the political economy and I would say especially the gender economy of that. Um, you know, in the world in which we now live in the 20. 20s, uh, you know, and whether like the American workforce takes that lying down or kind of 
uh, the the values of worker autonomy and like the the um, inviolability of the private home and space from the control of workers. Like, okay, if you're in the factory, the worker can t- the employer can tell you what to do, but if you're at home, that's you know there you're an individual, not a worker, and cannot be put under the control of somebody else. Um, you know, that's a politics that's uh, uh, hasn't been around for a long time, but I think it, 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 there's a possibility of it returning. Right. And I think you, you, one of your points about the the, biphas- the breakdown of the biphasic portion of your life, it, you know, that was already on the, the decline when we had the smartphone. I mean, when you were constantly attached to your email and a lot of times when your office is paying for that smartphone, meaning that they're paying for your for your time after the nine to five. So we saw the a massive increase in the number of total hours on the clock, despite the fact that like overall productivity has gone up, but not to commensurate with number of hours for salaried workers, despite salaried workers not being compensated for that time. So it, it's an interesting thing where you're talking about the breakdown now is like, okay, well, now you're at home, you're, your home is your work. And like Marshall said, the boss is going to come in even further than just the smartphone. Now they're going to use your smartphone as a, a listening device to determine whether or not the amount of hours that you spent on the clock have actually been spent on the clock, which is scary. Yeah, and they're gonna and they're gonna like you know t- deduct your from your wage anytime they right. think that you're providing childcare, not rather than doing it for them when you know you have no option. You know, since schools are would, might not be open, but of course we're opening schools too in order to serve up a captive labor force for uh, child exploitation. And, yeah, yeah, and I mean also you know the the schools themselves can't function without being open, and because we've completely de- de- made their budgets dependent on in-person things. I mean, I was we were talking about a thread yesterday from ecologists talking about how like colleges. Pricing has gone up across the board without actually offering any more teaching. It's all about the types of amenities that you can get. And so now if you don't have people in place at colleges, you all those amenities go right out the fucking window. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge part of the higher ed economy that's basically kind of it's, – it's not just that like, oh, teaching – needs to be done in person to be effective although that is definitely true it's also that like a huge as you're saying a huge part of the package of higher education that is you know under the tuition number that you're paying and the student debt that you're taking on is basically not feasible to provide under the current circumstance and so like the whole kind of setup and mix of activities that the universities have put in place uh you know basically can't go on and so they're basically in an existential crisis uh financially um you know so long as um, well you know, fire the fucking fund managers and dip into your endowments, which works for the private. Well, most, I mean, you know, I want to speak up on behalf of the part of higher education that doesn't have an an endowment to dip into. (laughs) Um, You know, the people who have endowments, uh, they, I mean, you know, I know that they're reluctant to do so because they think that like comparing the size of your endowment is the essence of being a higher ed administrator. Um, But, uh, you know, there's many more, uh, much more austerity that's going to be happening in, in the broader swath of higher ed that, you know, the vast majority of students depend on. Um, you know, and that's basically because, like, the business model that they depend on can't uh, possibly go on in an environment where the students are, like, can't be kind of, like, forced through their doors by the thousands every semester. Yeah, well, let me ask you one more, one final question. Uh, do you, we've talked about how, like, you know, Uber and Lyft, as an institution might not exist, but the, the role that they fulfill could possibly exist under some sort of ride sharing uh, system that is actually more amenable to the workers' rights and the worker power. Uh, do you think that Uber and Lyft will make that adjustment if you were to make a no, prediction? No, no. I think those companies are premised on the existing way of doing business. Uh, you know, it's very hard for a company to retool at that fundamental level. I mean, in that sense, they're, they're being quite forthcoming when they say like, oh, you know, we can't just turn the switch of employment on overnight the way that California is making us do, um, because that would require totally overturning our business model. That is actually true. I mean, they've been in violation of the law for 10 years. They've been, it, it, as it was, you know, this whole AB5 thing is now, uh, you know, made it so that like they're very clearly in violation of the law going back five months. And now they're saying they can't flip a switch. You know, it's kind of, it, that's true, but only because of their own um, inaction. I think, the, I mean, well, you know, the political economy of the, uh, of the gig economy is like very much still up for contestation. Um, you know, I'm not terribly optimistic on the whole, just because I'm not optimistic about anything in our current uh, <laughs> life. But I, I mean, in, you know, technically, or at least theoretically, uh, there absolutely could be a different way of organizing labor in this country, including the gig economy, one that gives workers power, including collectively. I mean, there's no reason, for example, right now, New York implemented a minimum pay regulation for uh, ride-sharing drivers, um, so that's great. 
um, you know, what that has meant is uh, more drivers want to drive at any given time because the effective pay is higher because they get paid for even the time that they don't have a passenger in the car. Um, so, you know, in the past, the companies wanted as many drivers activated at any one time as possible because that reduced wait times and created a whole pool of labor and they didn't have to pay the drivers unless they actually had a fare. Now they do have to pay the drivers if they don't have a fare, which means that the companies want as few people activated as possible at any given time, whereas more drivers want to be activated. So what that has given rise to in New York under the current system is the companies are locking people out. That is, yeah. you know, they, they say, you know, the drivers have flexibility to work when and how they want. Well, no, in New York, there are now lockouts where uh, drivers who activate basically are put in a queue. I don't know exactly how it works, but the companies say, like, you can or cannot be activated because if you are activated and you don't have a fare, we still have to pay you. To, to bring it to the point that we were making about alternative political economies for the gig economy, um, there's no reason why it's the company that ha- allocates the places in that queue. That could be uh, the equivalent of a labor union. Like, there are that you know, the, the like proverbial longshoremen in San Francisco or Oakland. <laughs>